Insights, which is a live online event for IIEA members, but which will, as usual, be podcast and available to all on the Institute's website in the coming days. It's a pleasure to welcome one of the most senior Irish diplomats of his generation to the Institute for the first time since his recent retirement. Dan Mulhall was Ireland's ambassador to the US until last year, and before that, he held a range of positions in the Department of Foreign Affairs over decades, including as amb ambassador both to Germany and the UK. He is currently a Parnell Fellow at Magdalen College in Cambridge, among a number of other post-retirement commitments. Today, we'll be focusing on his time in Washington, DC, and his insights into Ireland-US relations, American politics, and the role of the US in the world now, and in the future. Dan, you're very welcome to the Institute. Thank you, Dan. It's uh, good to talk to you and to the members of the Institute. Thanks. Good. I have Let's... a long-standing connection with the Institute going back many years. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and it's good to have you in, in a capacity where you're maybe slightly less uh, constrained than, than, than you were as, mm -hmm. uh, as a serving uh, as a serving diplomat, look. Let let let's start with 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 maybe a difficult one, but uh, your your sort of helicopter view of of Ireland, the state of Ireland U.S. relations. I know it'd be a difficult thing to do, even in a hundred page report. Never mind in a quick discussion like this, in a, uh, uh, in, a in, in a few minutes, in a nutshell. But you might share with us some of the most fundamental issues in Ireland U.S. relations that took up your time as ambassador in Washington, and and also the ones which you think might be most important for the future. Yeah, well, look, um, it's a very rich relationship. It's, in many ways, our most important international relationship. Obviously, we, we have our European Union membership and then our relationship with the UK, which will always be uh, vital uh, importance to us because of proximity and because of Northern Ireland. But if you look at the world in general, I think uh, America stands out as an extraordinarily um, important partner for Ireland across the board. But I look at the relationship in in, in three buckets. The first one is the political uh, connection, which is very strong, and it's um, it, it's fertilized every year on St. Patrick's Day by what can only be described as an extraordinary uh, Irish uh, day in Washington, D.C., where access to the U.S. system at the highest level becomes available through the Taoiseach of the day and uh, his or her delegation. And that is, I think, a sign of uh, a certain uniqueness that um, characterizes the Irish-American relationship. Um, and that relationship has huge importance uh, to Ireland, um, particularly when it comes to our wider uh, international uh, profile. But also, I think it's important in the context of our European Union membership, where our unique relationship with the United States, I think, plays well with our European partners. And it has a genuine importance, as we've seen in recent times, when it comes to uh, the issues to do with the fallout from Brexit and uh, Northern Ireland, including the vexed issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's the first bucket that I that I want to um, uh, talk about. The second is the extraordinary uh, relationship we have with the uh, Irish-American diaspora. And uh, you know, there are 30 plus million people in the United States who identify with Ireland. And my experience has been that that identification is still very strong. Of course, it's it, it's never guaranteed that you can never take it for granted. It, it could sort of uh, evaporate over time. Um, and But I think we, we now make a bigger effort to try to cultivate that relationship so it's no longer 
the kind of relationship was in the past. It has um, a more, I think, more substance to it now. We, we uh, you know, the government in the last 10 years in particular with the diaspora strategies that have been rolled out has really tried to, uh, to be um, an engaged partner for Irish American, not just a passive sort of recipient of Irish American um, admiration, affiliation and um, uh, support. And then the third area is the uh, economic relationship between Ireland and the United States, which has, uh, I think, developed and blossomed in recent decades and which now is, you know, I think our most important um, single uh, external economic relationship. It's overtaken the UK in, in many ways um, um, because of the, the investment flows uh, in both directions, the trade uh, significance of our trade with the United States, and indeed the fact that in the last pre-pandemic year, 2019, almost 2 million Americans came to Ireland. 10% uh, of all Americans who uh, came to Europe that year visited Ireland, which is extraordinary when you think about the our, our population, our size, compared with the whole of the European uh, continent. So I think that economic relationship is really one that is, is going to require tending, continual tending, especially as uh, global economic um, forces shift in various directions. And uh, I don't think we're ever going to be anything other than very dependent on the US into, as, a, as a market for Irish goods and as a source of investment into Ireland. Uh, the, the economic dimension that somebody pours over uh, oh, oh, the, the, the data on these things and the extraordinary bilateral economic relationship. We'll just come back on, come back to that in a moment. But just to pick you up on the diaspora piece, one would kind of instinctively think that as the generations passed, people got further and further away from their their, their sort of countries of origin in the U.S. That that sense of identity with the sort of the mother country would decline. Did, did you notice that or have you and your colleagues over the years noticed that or have, as the generations have gone on, people maintained their Irish American identity and sense of identity um, as much as, as in the past or has there been some waning of that as, as you kind of said could be possible? Well, in every generation, we have to worry about um, whether the next generation will take up the baton in the same way as their predecessors. But when I went to America uh, five years ago, um, I'd been led to expect that Irish America would be a waning uh, phenomenon, a waning resource for Ireland in across the board, but in, including more particularly in the political uh, domain, where clearly um, American politics um, is now peopled with um, politicians who come from a much wider range of backgrounds. If you look at the the Congress now, you will just see that there's a there's a much wider range and therefore the 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 past predominance of irish americans in uh, politics is uh, going to be a thing of the past but having said that my experience traveling around the united states was that people had what i saw as a surprisingly strong affinity and affection for ireland considering that most of them are you know at this stage four three four five generations removed from Ireland. And, you know, President Joe Biden is a good example of that phenomenon. I mean, he is descended, okay, um, eight of his 16 great, um, uh, great, great grandparents were Irish. Uh, he, has, he has two Irish great grandparents. And yet, um, he quite strongly and genuinely identifies himself proudly as an Irish American. So, 
that is something that uh, may be hard for people in Ireland to understand because I personally, I, I think I know uh, one of my great grandparents, I, I know uh, his story because I inherited uh, something uh, from him. But by and large, Irish people, I think, beyond their grandparents' generation, don't have that much sense uh, of, of, of their heritage. Whereas in America, you know, people can tell you the village, they can tell you the townland that their great, great, great grandparents came from. I remember meeting somebody uh, a few years ago uh, who told me that her mother, who was a fifth generation Irish American, was buried in the, in the graveyard, in the ancestral graveyard somewhere in the Irish Midlands, and that uh, the local people there tended the grave on behalf of this Irish American who's probably six or seven generations removed from, from Ireland. So for me, the surprise in America was not the waning of this Irish-American sentiment, but rather its persistence. Now, as I said to you, it's not guaranteed that in the, you know, in the current age where things change so rapidly that people will necessarily, um, you know, have the same value system as their parents. But so far, so good is how I would characterize the relationship. And I would say that it needs to be tended uh, carefully in the coming um, uh, years and decades in order to ensure that it continues to be the resource for Ireland that it has been uh, so effectively for the past hundred years and more. And, and, and moving back to the economic issues, and maybe we'll come back to how, how that uh, diaspora in the political world can, can be leveraged. But a, num a number of things over recent years have certainly raised concerns about the transatlantic relationship or the relationship, the transatlantic relationship with the EU and the US, but also more specifically Ireland, uh, given our dependence on the US market, as you mentioned, unlike any other EU member state. So some of the sort of trends that we've seen in recent, uh, in recent times, protectionism, for example, you know, I'm wondering how much you came in contact with, you know, hard manifestations of, um, American politicians wanting to bring jobs back from abroad, how that actually, you know, we, we know certain, some politicians in America made that point. Did it, did it manifest? Did you have to push back against it? Um, on the European side, this talk of strategic autonomy, particularly since the pandemic, that, you know, there's, there's, there's a concern about what the US is doing and maybe we want to be less dependent on the US or any other country, just in terms of how that actually manifested in your time there and how much uh, you, you dealt with that. Any insights into, in, into those issues? Well, I mean, surprisingly little really, given that the Trump administration and President Trump in particular had this rather aggressive attitude uh, towards um, economic issues, international economic issues and tended to see trade deficits as some kind of sign of uh, of sinfulness on the part of the you know the country that had a, a surplus with the United States and tended to to want to see uh, America first 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 all the way and and uh, maybe what even suspected American America only was really his uh, his position but but having said that um you know I, I remember once talking to somebody a senior person from the Trump administration and I made the following point I asked the question how many jobs did your administration create last month? And the answer for much of the Trump administration was about a quarter of a million jobs were created um, uh, most months during the Trump administration, certainly prior to the uh, prior to the pandemic. And then I made the point, I said, well, how many jobs do you think there are in Ireland that are being maintained by American companies? And the answer at that time was 160,000. 
So I made the point that even if you transferred all of those jobs back to the United States, which was, would be an impossibility uh, to do, it would be a statistical blip on the uh, United States uh, labor market statistics, right? So that point was taken. And I remember afterwards hearing the same person in a speech actually referenced that point. I was quite pleased uh, that my point had been taken on board. So the point is that when you when you point out to Americans just how how relatively limited the uh, job numbers are in Ireland, hugely important for Ireland, of course, but but in American terms are a drop in the ocean. I think they, they tend to back off and say, oh, yeah, OK, we understand. And also American companies benefit hugely uh, from their presence in Ireland. I often had occasion to point to the sort of transfers of profits that um, came from Ireland to United States companies to the benefit of the US economy. And that point tended to be taken on board as well. And now more recently, we've been able to point to the fact that Irish companies are investing very heavily in the United States during my time in the US um, from figures supplied by Enterprise Ireland's office in the United States, about between 60 and 70 Irish companies were entering the US market for the first time. And they, between them now, are employing more than 100,000. Uh, Irish origin companies are, are employing uh, well north of 100,000 uh, people in the US economy across all 50 states. And I believe it won't be long before there'll be more Americans working for Irish companies than there are uh, Irish people working for American companies. That trend is, is, is I think, underway. And I don't think it'll be long before uh, that, 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 that tipping point occurs where, where, where actually uh, Ireland is, is supplying more jobs to America than America is supplying to Ireland. That's an, an interesting one. And I, I wonder, did, did anyone ever push back on that slightly? Because Irish companies tend to acquire American companies rather than set up greenfield operations, whereas the well, Americans... Naturally, I didn't, naturally I, I didn't stress, I, I didn't I, underline that point, naturally. Um, you, know, when, you, know, when, you know, one tells, you know, you tell the truth, but you tell the truth in ways that are, you know, that are, that are helpful uh, from the point of view of the arguments you're trying to put across. But, but, but I mean, but, uh, but the point is that that, However you look at it, the, the relationship has become more of a two-way relationship in the last, say, 20 years than would have been the case 40 years ago, for example, when I think there, there would have been little or no um, Irish investment in the United States. Now I think that level of investment is growing, certainly, and it's now at a level which I think is significant in U.S. terms. And very often, you know, when I went to a to a U.S. state, the state government would give me a briefing on, you know, their connection with Ireland. And Ireland would be in the top four or five investors in many of these countries. Now, some of that investment is by uh, companies that are headquartered in Ireland, uh, but the Americans don't make any distinction there. I mean, they understand that company. And I often made the point to them, OK, there may be U.S. companies headquartered in Ireland uh, for, you know, reasons of their global economic uh, operation, but there are also Irish companies like uh, Stripe, for example, which was an Irish company that ended up, you know, being headquartered in in the in the US. But so it works both ways, and so I I, I became less um less um sensitive about that issue uh, over time because I saw that Americans were quite happy to count uh, investment in America from companies headquartered in Ireland, even though we wouldn't regard those companies necessarily as Irish companies. Okay, so it, it's not the, my, that's my my hunch is that it it's it's something that that people. People could raise in a sort of protectionist way by saying, you know, Irish companies are acquiring American companies. Is that necessarily a good thing? But I, I haven't heard people make that point. No, today. and I and I you never, I, I never came across anything um, along, along those lines. I, I, I think, I mean, because I always 
how do people, you know, if, for example, I mean, um, Ornua uh, last year um, acquired some some um, cheese plants uh, in America, in, 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 in the American Midwest. And, and, and I mean, the, the idea is that that they don't buy those companies just to keep them as they are. They buy them to grow the business through those companies. So the acquisitions are are tend to be dynamic acquisitions because the Irish companies that are, you know, that are buying are companies that are on the rise that are trying to extend their, you know, their remit, um, you know, uh, by acquiring businesses and then growing those businesses internally within the United States. So I think these things are a positive for the United States. And I don't think we should be shy uh, about the fact that that Irish companies acquire um, going concerns in the United States and then maybe, you know, um, infuse some 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 Irish magic into the mix uh, to grow those companies in the United States to the benefit of the U.S. economy. Um, it, it, interestingly, the, the, one of the sort of issues that you, you certainly hear a lot more about from uh, both sides of, of the Atlantic continent, Europe and, and the U.S., is Ireland's position on the corporation tax issue. And, you know, there is no doubt that companies do use lower corporation tax rates in Ireland uh, in, let's say, a creative way to book more of their profits in Ireland. But the point I always make to American and French and German friends is that, like you said, in terms of um, jobs, that the numbers involved are a drop in the bucket in terms of the French budget or never mind the American uh, budget. But that's not a point that seems to ever get raised that much. There, There is the sense of just there's an injustice. Some would go as far as to say that, that, that Ireland's corporation tax is so low that it does encourage that kind of um, transfer pricing and other other accounting um, means to book more profits in Ireland. How much of a you know how, how much antipathy would you say there is towards Ireland uh, around that issue? Is it more from sort of commentators and academics than people in politics, or did you pick it up in in DC as well? Of course, during the Trump administration, uh, they were. They admired uh, our uh, corporate tax regime and wanted to emulate it. In fact, they um, some of them uh, told me they wanted to put the U.S. corporate rate down to ten percent. Uh, therefore, would be under our rate. Um, so during the Trump administration, um, the tax issue really didn't uh, raise its head at all. Um, um, under the Biden administration, obviously, you had the push for the global uh, corporate minimum uh, tax rates, and we came under a degree of pressure, as is well known. It's 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 not something that I'm telling um, any any kind of uh, you know internal tales about. It was it, it was public pressure, and of course, that was reflected in in, in pressure on us as well. But not uh, not I would say overwhelming. I mean, it wasn't something that I heard about on a on, on a daily or weekly basis. Even, but it did come up, and they you know there was a degree of pressure applied. Uh, to us, and eventually a, a solution was found on that. I think we were probably never going to hold out uh, as you know with, with a small um, motley group of of countries that were there in the beginning. And I think eventually we, we you know we made a sensible uh, you know agreement uh, and moved on from there. So so I I certainly think um, the corporate issue, the corporate tax issue, is is more of an issue in, in Europe uh, than it is uh, with the United States, where you know the attitude to taxation is somewhat different from the attitudes you will find in many European countries. Interesting, yeah. The um, it, it seems that the more Irish corporation tax revenues go up, the more uh, people outside who pay attention to these things feel that there is uh, that, 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 that there is an issue. Um, and I, I don't think that issue, I don't think that concern is is so much felt in the United States, which is so much bigger 
than any of the European countries we're talking about. So I, I think it's it's probably more of an issue for for our European partners than it is for for Americans uh, who, um, as I say, have a have a different attitude towards taxation generally. I'm just uh, I'm thinking about it on the Democrat side. Have you seen it become? More, did you see it become more of an issue over time? Um, or did, was it always similar? I get the impression that it's it's moved up the agenda on the Democrat side. Yeah, but I mean, again, like the Democrats had control of the Ways and Means uh, Committee, uh, and they did some some hearings, but none of the hearings ever really um, resulted in any serious, um, you know, examination or criticism of uh, Ireland's uh, corporation tax rate. Now, I mean, uh, that, that may partly be because um, you know um, there was some good strong Irish American uh, voices uh, on the committee but I don't think that was that was actually the reason I, I think the reason was that they 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 had more important things to focus on uh, rather than you know corporation tax in a, a, a relatively small European economy in, in overall terms albeit you know an important part of the United States so I think I think the appreciation of Ireland has actually risen in a positive way in the United States as an economic partner uh, and in fact I, I remember hearing you know a number of corporate bosses extol uh, Ireland's achievements uh, in ways that I remember talking to one uh, senior um, corporate uh, figure um, in the um, American system and uh, saying that I, I'd i like to take him on as our um, PR person uh, for, you know, promoting our economic attractions. And uh, his answer was, you couldn't afford me. And I think that's probably true. <laughs> um, and from the other side of the Atlantic, in terms of things you were concerned about, um, you know, I hear a lot of Americans worried about the carbon border adjustment tax uh, on the EU side. How much time did you spend being concerned or hearing concerns about things that were going to happen from Brussels, or particularly from Brussels, that that could have affected the, the Irish-American economic relationship? Of were, course. Was that, did they come on, on your agenda much? Were, you, was this, were they issues that raised concerns for you? Of course, for most of the time that I was there, um, it was the Trump administration. And uh, shall we say, um, the U European US relationship at that time was not in robust uh, good health in the sense that uh, there was a, a predisposition on the part of senior people in the administration to the very top, to the president himself, to be quite um, you know tough on, Euro on Europeans, and of course, there were uh, a number of of disputes that that uh, that were um, prevalent during that time. There was the Airbus uh, Boeing dispute. There was the uh, steel and uh, steel and aluminium um, tariffs, and so forth. So, so the, the, there was a you know the, at that time, I I recall strongly that the the our coordination meetings in the European Union ambassadors um, were rather. Um, rather um, fraught affairs and that we were constantly um, mulling over um, uh, difficulties in the relationship and looming difficulties that uh, appeared to be in danger of getting out of hand. Now, happily, that never happened. And I remember in particular, um, Jean-Claude Juncker came to um, the United States to meet with um, President Trump. And I remember most of my colleagues thought that this was a not a good idea because they would not have been uh, natural um, bedfellows, natural um, friends. They have very different experiences and personalities. And that actually worked out fairly well and the relationship got back on a more even keel for a little while. But certainly since the Biden administration has um, taken over, I mean, it's not that the issues have gone away, but the, the issues of 
you know, uh, some of those issues have been resolved, at least uh, temporarily, the, the, you know, the Boeing Airbus dispute, which actually affected Ireland because it meant that there were there were 25% tariffs on, on, on Irish butter and cheese and cream liqueurs, which was a significant uh, hit to our to our economic uh, relationship with the United States. And happily, they've all uh, become a thing of the past, at least for the time being. Uh, but of course, other issues have come onto the agenda, but those issues tend to be dealt with uh, you know, between the European Union and the United States, rather than directly by the individual uh, member states. I mean, the one issue that that I recall being heavily involved in uh, during that time was the sanctions on on on, um, uh, on Oleg Deripaska, which um, threatened at one stage to uh, bring about the closure of the Organisch Alumina uh, plant. And there, I have to say this now, um, and people would probably be surprised at this, but there the Trump administration were actually very um, receptive to our arguments. They listened to us um, and eventually they changed um, the um, the sanctions package, uh, partly because of pressure from us, but others as well. But we were, I was probably the most active ambassador in terms of pushing that agenda because I was really uh, fearful that that the uh, you know the loss of of organization would have a, an enormous um, effect on on the economy of the region and down in uh, West Limerick, but also would leave Ireland with a uh, with a with a white elephant uh, with, you know, with a plant that would have to be decommissioned at huge uh, cost, uh, probably to the state in the end. Um, so they were willing to to listen to us, and I had extensive conversations with them. And eventually, I, I actually wrote a piece. I wrote a piece for the for the Washington Post, uh, which they didn't publish because it didn't fit their narrative of, you know, the Trump administration being a sort of a bogey uh, and one that could never be given any credit at all. And in fact, I remember at the time our Irish American politicians, you know, weighing in to criticize, uh, you know, in fairly strong terms, uh, the decisions of the Trump administration, um, which which I was very happy about and very happy to, you know, to recognize and applaud. So that's an example of how, you know, even though they were ideologically perhaps hostile uh, uh, to some of European interests and even potentially to our interests, you know, you could you could you could work on them and bring them around and and, and they could, you know, they would listen. They, certainly the people at official level would listen to to um you know, recent arguments and in some cases in this case would take action to to adjust their, you know, their policies in order to accommodate our concerns. Uh, I'm very tempted to ask you for some color on, on why the Juncker Trump relationship uh, so it probably turned out to be a, a good one, but maybe that that for another time we've got a, loads of questions to get through. Um, on, on other issues in, in terms of transatlantic relations uh, that could affect Ireland, your, your time in Washington coincided with a very radical change in how China is perceived in the US. Um, it's one of the few issues that both parties in the US agree on. Um, how do you see US-China relations going um, in the future? Is, is it full Cold War mode? And how do you think Ireland-Europe stands in, in that? Is it something that Ireland and Europe fundamentally will always take America's side? Or is there a middle ground? Or are the Americans going to put pressure? And did you see any evidence of that in your time there, where the Americans were putting pressure on us on this side of the Atlantic to, to take sides? Well, it's it's no secret that um, the relationship with uh, between America and China has, has gone into a different phase a more adversarial phase than in the past and that was certainly something that the trump administration um initiated perhaps but 
it's been taken up um, um, by the Biden administration. I don't think there's been much of a, a change of, of attitude. Now, um, again, I think um, uh, the Biden administration is maybe more nuanced in the way they they deal with these things, but I don't think the fundamentals have changed uh, in any way. And uh, I, I would hope that they would find some kind of broader accommodation with uh, China. That's what the world needs. It's what everyone needs. Uh, I think it's what the Americans need as well, if they can manage it. But but at the moment, uh, that the, the the sort of, you know, the omens in that don't look great. Um, and we seem to be, be, be moving. I think obviously the Ukraine crisis has, has, has changed things, uh, changed the outlook in many ways. And, and the priority is now on, on supporting Ukraine and pushing back against Russia. But I don't think that the, that will necessarily lead to a long-term sort of, um, you know, shifting of, of the uh, relationship with, with China back to a more, um, a more collegial, approach so i rather fear that we are headed um uh, for more and more of an adversarial um uh, relationship uh, between the us and china which as i say is a bad thing and and uh, should be avoided and in my view uh, europe should do everything it can uh, to uh, to try to find um, some kind of middle ground uh, in this sphere um but i think it's going to be very difficult and uh, yes i mean i think all all, all uh, European um, um, and embassies and ambassadors and, and in Washington came under pressure on, for example, Huawei and 5G and all of that and, uh, you know, investment screening and so forth. So, I mean, um, it, it, it didn't come to a head. It hasn't come to a head. But I think we're I think we have to find I think Europe and America will have to find some kind of uh, of of ground. Now there, I mean, there are negotiations, there are discussions going on. I understand. I'm not obviously I'm, I'm not part of privy to any information on this anymore because i'm no longer in the service but uh but um europe and the us are talking about you know having a dialogue about the indo-pacific and china and so on and i would i hope i have my fingers crossed tightly that this will result in some kind of uh of um of consensus that doesn't sort of you know head um uh full tilt in the um adversarial direction but i, I i'm i'm rather fearful that that that's where we might be headed yeah and we could again attempt to go further on that and just to talk about the the uh, difference in how europe and america analyze china and how how much is possible whether the americans are right but we were running out of time and just want to get to a broader question of, of how your perception of, of america's leadership role in the world and how the polarization of American politics might have changed that um, over time and how, how you know you can be economically very strong and militarily very strong as the United States is but if at home you're, you're so divided that you can't agree on what foreign policy should be um, just from the Democrat side that you know there used to be a view in the Democrat side on both sides I suppose that America was a beacon uh, for democracy around the world I sense that's changed on the Democrat side to some extent, and there's the kind of this view that America is a structurally racist society, and that it's not a beacon, and that it doesn't have any right to 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 be putting itself forward as a, as a model for the rest of the world. I'm wondering, in your time in Washington, did you see what might be called a, a woke worldview manifest itself in in um, on the Democratic side, and and in in you know, do, do you think that could affect? 
the, um, the democratic, future democratic presidents in, in, and the current one indeed, in terms of showing leadership in the world? Well, what I would say is that it is alarming um, to have a situation in the world's leading democracy um, where every election is kind of seen as Armageddon time. I mean, genuinely, people on the democratic side believe that if a certain election outcome were to um, um, arise, that that would be the end of America as we know it. And likewise, on the Republican side, there are many who believe that uh, democratic uh, control of the American system on an ongoing basis would result in the end of America as they know it. So these kind of existential fears are things you don't really find in these days much in European politics, but they're they're very much part and parcel of uh, where America is today, um, you know, the headspace of America is, is a very divided one, and 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 you know, I it's it's very difficult uh, to see how things are going to come together. I mean, we 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 see the last election there was some indication of more middle ground or people not being willing to vote for the more extreme sort of anti or the you know uh, the more extreme election deniers and uh, and more extreme views on abortion and so forth. But having said that, you can see in in the Congress that that uh, you know uh, already you know the new Congress is starting to um, you know to rattle the saber and and you know attack you know the Biden administration and, and look to impeach and so forth. So so sadly, um, America is in a divided condition, and there's no sign that there's a coming together on the the cards anytime soon. So yes, that does affect the way in which America is viewed in the wider world. However, I have this kind of having been in America, having traveled around the country, having been in all 50 states over the last five years, I have a belief in the better angels, as Abraham Lincoln called them, of America. Because going around the country, I was I was impressed that I didn't meet many people, if any people, that had that kind of either racist views on one side or woke views on, on, on the other. Most Americans seem to me to be in the broad center somewhere. And the question is how politically that broad center can be energized and can be given um, a new life. And I remember uh, talking one day to a, to a, to a, um, a, a Republican congressman from California. And I said, oh, I assume that you're a middle of the road, um, you know, Republican, given that you're a moderate Republican or a middle of the road Republican, given that you're, um, you know, representing a strongly blue state. And he said, no, he said, uh, if you're in the middle of the road, you get run over. So, you know, the incentive to go to even in places, I mean, for example, um, Governor Baker of Massachusetts stepped down uh, at the last election because he, 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 even though he was a Republican who was able to win in Massachusetts and would have won a second term comfortably, uh, he, he knew he couldn't win a Republican primary in Massachusetts because uh, the Republican Party in Massachusetts in, would not be willing to vote for somebody like him, even though he could become, he was successful in becoming governor of that uh, very um, democratic state. So yes, America's um, future is up for grabs, uh, and I think I'll be watching with my fingers tightly crossed over the next few years to see the direction of travel. Because I honestly believe we need an America that is that is occupying some kind of center ground, because that's the only place in which they can build uh, international coalitions to do the things that I think the world needs to have done. And when I say the world, I mean the world, including Ireland, of course. And just moving on to the possibility of a, of a Republican 
taking over the White House in, in a couple of years' time. Like there, there are clearly people within on the on, within the Republican Party now who, who see people like Victor Orban as being more of a model okay. for them, um, who oppose supporting Ukraine, um, possibly even some admiration for for the likes of Putin. Like that just seems inconceivable. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, you know, on the Republican side. What, how do you see the next president if he or she is Republican? And I, I know that you've met Ron DeSantis yes. uh, um, personally. Um, so it'd be just interested to hear your broader views on that and, and maybe some insights on, on, on DeSantis as, as he seems to be the leading Republican or close to a Republican contender, what, what he might be like as a foreign policy, as a foreign policy president. Yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, I think for the Republican Party and for American politics generally, a lot of the, the more moderate voices in the Republican Party have been eased out because they've faced primaries or they, they decided not to run because they knew they would be ousted in a primary. Uh, and you now have a Republican Party that is has shifted significantly to the right, which I don't believe is where the American public are. Um, um, or, uh, but however, I mean, you, you, we, we, you, know, you do now have a you know, a Congress in which the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the Trump uh, element is, is really in the ascendancy. And the question is, what, what does Trumpism without Trump look like? Um, does Trumpism survive without Trump? And who could be the, the kind of the character, the politician who could kind of, who, who could voice uh, Trumpist uh, policies and keep the Trump coalition together and yet win over maybe some of the more um, undecided voters are moderate Republicans who just couldn't vote for Trump but might be willing to vote for Ron DeSantis. See, as Ron, Ron DeSantis is the the you know the person that looks strongest at the moment, but I would but I would caution against uh, jumping to any conclusions because um, you know um, this time in the 2016 uh, presidential cycle, um, I would say Jeb Bush looked like a shoe in, and he ended up um, you know fizzling out um, very quickly. So. Uh, no guarantee, I and mean, there's lots of examples in the past in American politics of uh, credible, uh, you know, effective, successful governors who, um, when they step up to the national stage, are found out, and and you know their you know their weaknesses are discovered, and they sort of fade away uh, from the political limelight. So I I don't I mean I I met DeSantis, he's an impressive character, but I hear a lot of people say that he uh, he lacks some of the qualities that you would require to be successful. Uh, on the national stage. But I think once, if it becomes clear that there's going to be a contest and that uh, Donald Trump is not uh, going to be a shoe-in, going to be sort of, um, uh, I think you'll see uh, quite a few candidates coming out of the woodwork and I think there'll be a fairly vigorous um, uh, primary season on the Republican side. Um, and um, when that happens, you know, um, all bets are off. You wouldn't bet against Donald Trump because of the fierce loyalty he enjoys from from the Trump base, which is about probably thirty percent uh, of the electorate. Then you know he's got a very strong base on which to um, build on. And if there are multiple candidates in primaries, then Trump's thirty percent is likely to win most primaries. So a lot is going to happen in the next uh, year before the first um, primaries come around. So I wouldn't place any bets if I were you on any candles, either on the Republican or the Democrat side. I think on the Democrat side, it's quite clear that if uh, President Biden decides to run again, he won't be, he won't have a serious challenge to face. Um, if he decided not to run, then I think there'll be a whole uh, slate of people who would see themselves as having um, some kind of um, credentials for the um, nomination. 
Okay, we've just got a few minutes left, but I, I'm just going to press you on, on DeSantis. I suppose one of the things that kept diplomats uh, uh, so nervous during the Trump administration was his unpredictability. Just in, in the terms of, you know, your engagement with him, did, did you get the impression he was as, as much of a loose cannon as Trump or, or a more uh, restrained kind of so character? I, I, I suspect that uh, he he may he would have to in a in a Republican primary he would have to play the he would have to to out Trump Trump almost he'd have to kind of you know find a way of of positioning himself um, that would that would ensure that 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 he would have maximum chance of 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 defeating Trump but I I suspect that that uh, in a in a general election campaign. After he's won the election, I think you would find him trying to move a little bit to try to appeal to uh, uh, more of the uh, more of the center ground because it's it, it's clear. I think it's become pretty clear that um, the Trump base alone doesn't give you a winning formula in the United States at the moment. That you do need the Trump base plus plus. And the question is, um, can someone like is is is, is, is there anybody? In the system in America and the Republican fraternity that can keep the Trump base and yet make an appeal to people beyond the Trump base. The danger for, for the Sanders is that he would paint himself into a corner uh, during the primaries and then will find it difficult to shed some of that baggage when it comes to the general election. But he's a clever operator. I found him certainly uh, quite impressive. But whether he can whether he can turn that into um gold dust on the national electoral stage. That's the thing that we'll only see when the time comes. Uh, so with that, Dan, I think we you have covered an awful lot of ground uh, today. I think uh, it, it was a great discussion. I, we could have gone on for another 45 minutes uh, at least. Uh, but look, on my own behalf, on behalf of the Institute, many thanks for taking the time to join us today and sharing those thoughts with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks to everyone for joining. Thanks. Bye.